Those are the sounds of the first launch of Rocket Lab's Electron Rocket, a milestone event that happened six years ago in one of the world's least likely places for rocket launches, New Zealand. The rise of Rocket Lab is one of the stories told in a new book about space startups called When the Heavens Went on Sale. The book's author, Ashley Vance, recounts the amazing feats and sometimes the amusing foibles of four companies trying to turn a profit by launching rockets or building satellites. One of the lessons from the book is that when it comes to space ventures, some level of failure is definitely an option. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, your host for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Listen in to my conversation with Ashley Vance about the good, the bad, and the ugly on the commercial Final Frontier. Ashley Vance has been a tech journalist for more than two decades, but his career really took off, so to speak, when his biography of Elon Musk was published in 2015. That book, titled Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future, caused a stir with anecdotes that highlighted Musk's genius as well as some of his eccentricities. Vance's new book, when the Heavens Went on Sale, can be read almost as a sequel. The success enjoyed by Musk and SpaceX has inspired thousands of entrepreneurs around the globe to create their own space ventures. Vance focuses on four of those ventures, Rocket Lab, Planet Labs, Astra, and Firefly Aerospace. Vance's book isn't just about building a business. It's also about the romance, the risk, and sometimes the ridiculousness that comes with creating a space venture. Ashley and I shared a laugh more than once during our Zoom conversation, and I hope that you'll be entertained as well. I started out by asking Ashley to trace the path that took him from the Elon Musk biography to his new book. I was not and am not <laughs> really kind of a, a space uh aficionado or nerd you know by nature and and it was really that that book on elon that that set me off on this path of, of getting so deep into this world some of my favorite reporting from the elon book was was spacex especially the early days and getting all these stories of what it was like to make the falcon one on kwajalein and and all that and and right as the book came out i just happened to take a trip to New Zealand and I saw there was this guy named Peter Beck in this company Rocket Lab, you know, making something quite similar to the Falcon 1 and it just struck me not like immediately but I had the sense that wow, this is this is pretty amazing. Now there's a guy who didn't even go to college who's making a rocket in New Zealand. It feels like there's something interesting happening here and and of course you you know as that was about 2016 and rocket startups just started appearing all over the place and satellite startups and I just I just kind of got the bug at that point and you know in some ways I guess wanted to relive the Falcon 1 
days that I didn't get to see firsthand and and now could see how a, a rocket gets made from scratch and just it just all felt very exciting and like something new was bubbling up. Huh. So it started with Peter Beck and Rocket Lab, but you have three other companies that you focus on in this book. How did you go about selecting those companies? Well, that was the hardest part in some ways because you know I've been working on this book for about five or six years. And as people may or may not know, aerospace time <laughs> moves um, at a much slower speed than regular time and things go wrong. And, and so when you're sending out to do your research, um, sort of had to pick a few horses. You know, there were a lot of rocket companies all over the place, and and some of them seem more real than others. And I kind of just went with my gut a little bit. I did a lot of reporting on on everybody for for Business Week, where I write stories, you know, kind of more newsy type things. But um, but pretty early on, I focused on the four that are in the company, which is is Planet Lab. Rocket Lab, um, Astra, and Firefly. And each one of those just had, I thought, a unique sort of take on commercial space for various reasons we can we can get into. But um, I knew Rocket Lab would do well. Planet Labs is a maker of small satellites, and they were quite well established and had already done some pretty spectacular things. So I felt good about those two. And then Astra and Firefly, or rocket makers, and those those were a bit of a gamble, um, but they they kind of ended up in interesting spots. Is there anything else you want to say about the rogues gallery? Like, if you were doing playing cards for each of those or trading cards, how would you describe them? Yeah, well, there were some like relativity space, which is trying to three D print rockets that looked fascinating. But I, I looked at their timeline and I thought, oh. You're trying to fly a rocket for the first time while you 3D print one. That's I suspect you're gonna fall outside of my my window of of, of time. And then there's another company, Spin Launch, that I was interested in. They're trying to do what's sort of like a, a slingshot to throw rockets into orbit and and had some very promising technology. But same thing, I sort of thought, uh, that's gonna take a while. And then not to uh not to sort of stick it into a company that's just run across a very tough time. But Virgin Orbit um, was a well-funded rocket company. I just never got a very good vibe on their prospects for success. And and they just recently filed for bankruptcy. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you just have to, have to kind of go with your gut and, and try to try to map some of these things out the best I could. Firefly is a particularly crazy case, and it has a Ukraine-Russia <laughs> connection, too. I, I kind of suspect that if you were to, to choose one that would be part of a Wes Anderson movie or something, that might be the company. Yeah, I mean, that one is really less about fire. It has lots of stuff on Firefly and its rocket, but it's really about this guy, Max Polyakov, who was the... He's an OBGYN turned software multimillionaire turned, you know, rocket magnate and is just this, as people will see in the book, I think it's fair to say a one of a kind kind of force of, of nature. And, and so the story was really what happens when you put this sort of like a bull in a China shop in the, in the aerospace industry. And I knew I wanted to see what would happen. I never in my, when I set out, to do this, I, I knew things would get weird. I did not know how weird they would get, not only with Max having some 
very major issues with the U.S. government, but but obviously, you know, Russia and Ukraine going to war and this becoming quite like a, a central part of Max's story. Speaking of forces of nature, it sounds as <laughs> if you and Elon Musk are on speaking terms again after, shall I say, some differences of opinion over what you wrote in the book about him. What would you like yeah. to say about his current status in the tech world and in the commercial space community and how you're getting along with him? Yeah, well, let's do the last part first. Yeah, I, you know, we we had a pretty fruitful relationship, very cordial while I was doing the book, uh, lots of interviews and and uh, always I always enjoyed my time with him. When the book came out, he he went through a bit of like a roller coaster of emotion. <laughs> you know, the initially he was fine with it and then and then some people wrote stories and really kept harping on a couple of the less flattering stories in the book. And over time, he he had a bad reaction to that. So he didn't talk to me for a long time. And then I think, as they say, time heals all wounds. He, just, I don't know exactly what happened, but I write about it in the new book. Um, he just called me out of the blue one day while I was in New Zealand reporting on Rocket Lab. And, and we've been talking since then. Um, gosh, I've got a lot to say about Elon, really. Um, you know, in some ways, space Elon is the easiest Elon to understand, which which is is surprising in some sense. I mean, SpaceX is almost like the most stable thing in his life, which you you usually cannot say for rocket companies. Um, but you know, SpaceX is is more or less lapping the entire world of of aerospace at this point, and and has had this tremendous string of success, the biggest well the most prolific rocket maker right now and the the most prolific satellite maker um that we've seen and you know and elon shows no signs of slowing down he's he's obviously quite a uh, more controversial <laughs> <laughs> character on twitter i have to say it's all it's all gotten a little bit funny from when i wrote the book um it's also funny for me elon's been around for so long now and gone through so many changes we kind of forget that you know he was like in the PayPal days, he was kind of this dot com millionaire. I guess he sort of fit that that persona. And then um then he was like this exciting guy who was doing electric cars and rockets, but they didn't work very well. And so then he was kind of ridiculed for wasting all his money and promising stuff that never happened. And then he was like uh this lefty, you know, um success story trying to you know and all the the right hated him and now the right loves him and the, <laughs> and the left hates him it's 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 amazing to see somebody go through this many transitions on on whole i mean this is largely elon's fault in his doing um but you know he's become something of a he's this like binary p proposition i think you either people seem to either love him or hate him and i think it's a bit silly if you actually know him and spend time with him i mean like anyone he's a nuanced person in in person he is not the twitter elon um he's actually i get along or at least find it easier to talk to him than i i even used to and uh yeah so you know just a fascinating figure especially um as it relates to my book, I mean, I just point out that early on that I I doubt we would be having this commercial space discussion if if SpaceX hadn't been a success and Elon sort of set this whole thing in motion. My my book is more or less a story of people who want to 
be the next Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. It, it's almost as if he's a, a character who is dominating, even though he doesn't appear on the stage. And and now with the Starship project, uh, this is a new chapter in that SpaceX saga. Uh, do you have anything you want to say about the Starship test flight? Uh, that, again, is kind of a polarizing event. Some people say, ah, it's a failure. Yeah. Others say, ah, it's a success. Uh, and in your book, I, I think you you show how what looks like a failure to people who aren't familiar with the space industry could actually be sold as a success, at, at least for investors. Yeah. And, and not, yes, that happens in the book. <laughs> I think in this case, you know, not even, not even just sold. I mean, reporting this book and going through, I went through sitting in Alaska for weeks during a launch campaign and, and you know, seeing what it takes to build one of these from scratch. I, I was with Astra basically since day one when they started. And uh, even though we've gotten really far, and there's a number of rocket makers, it's still just an incredibly hard thing to do. And um, I am more convinced than ever, having reported this book, that that launch was a success. I mean, if it doesn't blow up on a, on the pad, that's good. If you get to max Q where the rocket gets tested the most, that's good. If you get four minutes of data, that's really good. And, and, you know, all those are, um, are major milestones that I'm sure SpaceX will very much use to their advantage, um, moving forward. So yeah, you know, the, the, the pad looked a little ugly there, <laughs> but, but, but I think, uh, success overall. Would you care to make a prediction about the timing and the circumstances of the next flight? There has been a lawsuit that, that some environmental groups have filed over the previous attempt. Yeah, no, I would not like to do that. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> once, once, once the law, when you have lawsuits combined with aerospace time, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's anyone's guess, I think. <laughs> Good. Uh, I was particularly struck by this passage in the book, quote, technology and startup people always make unrealistic promises, but rocket startup CEOs appear to suffer from a unique form of self-delusion more spectacular than their peers. Rather than go more conservative, you go more ridiculous, unquote. I do think that the space industry takes the fake it till you make it dial up to 11. And uh, certainly Elon Musk has been a master of that strategy. But does the strategy have its limits? And are we getting close to the limit? Well, I would argue, you know, you almost have to do, <laughs> do some of this stuff in space. Yeah. I am optimistic about all of this and very excited to see where it goes. But I point out in the book, none of us know if the business case on any of this stuff makes sense. And the most hilarious part about commercial space to me is that everybody wants to make a rocket and the rocket is the absolute worst part of the business you could possibly be in. <laughs> you don't make any money is like years of pain and suffering. Nothing goes right. And, and, you know, I mean, what is the, what do you achieve at the end? You've got this low margin business that's dependent on the weather and now you've got all this competition. And so it, it, it kind of cracks me up in some ways. So you have to, you have to make these promises. I think it's another part of the book is, is this transition from governments to billionaires to venture capitalists backing the stuff you can make a pretty good case that no venture capitalist should be putting money into a rocket company. Um, I think it's, 
I think it's part of the fascination of space. It's the same thing. People want to make rockets and they want to, they want to fund rockets because it's, um, it's cool. It's sexy. It's, you know, I think there's a irrationality to space as a business that is because it's space and it, it comes with all these centuries of, uh, mystique and storytelling and, and baggage with it. And so, no, I mean, it's a, it's a very strange thing that's going on. I think we're, you, you, we had, there's sort of chapters to this, I guess, you know, now we've gone through this spec craze where a lot of these space, we'd really never had a public space company. Now we have lots of them and it's, it's sort of not where you want to be when your rockets are blowing mm-hmm. up and things like that. Um, so I, spe- I suspect we're going to have a bit of a, things are going to come back to reality here for a second. Some companies are going to go out of business. Um, but you know, I think the next 10, 20 years, we're going to make a real go of this and see if there is a business up there. It's interesting that three of the companies that you focus on are rocket companies, and all three of them have talked about how they don't want to be just a rocket company. For example, Rocket Lab has this satellite platform business that they're developing. Astra has talked about putting tens of thousands of satellites into low Earth orbit for uh, their own constellation, a la Starlink. And Firefly, uh, Max talked about, you know, Firefly is not just going to be a rocket company. We're going to do the whole thing. Uh, Is that going to be the trend in order to attract the sort of investment that's going to be needed in the years to come? It certainly seems to be. I mean, the money is in satellites, and I think the industry is really maturing. You know, I, I doubt we will see... There's already companies like Ursa Major, which are making engines. You know, you don't you don't have to do all this from scratch. When you look at the the satellites, you know, 90% of the satellite now can be built for you by companies like Rocket Lab, and you just attach your bit of technology, your your special camera, your scientific equipment, whatever to that. I think this is it reminds me so much of the early days of the PC industry where, you know. Apple used to cobble together everything on their own. And then eventually you get to IBM, then you get the clones, then everything's nice and packaged and and you've got your Intel and you've got your memory makers and all that. I think that's kind of where we're heading. And, um, you know, I think it's very hard for me to see the business case of just a pure rocket company. I mean, it's, 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 it's like, it's a horrible place to be unless there is this universe where, all this stuff takes off. We're making huge new businesses in space. We have to send up a rocket every day, all you know, and and maybe then you could just be a, a like literally kind of the the FedEx of space and and make a business from that. Mm-hmm. Is SpaceX's dominance in the commercial space industry so established that it's analogous to Boeing's dominance in commercial aviation? Or do you see a scenario where some other company pulls ahead? I'm particularly curious about Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' space venture, which comes in for one not-so-positive mention in the yeah. book. Yeah, well, I would argue rightfully so. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> Blue Origin and SpaceX started almost the exact same time and, and you know, one of these companies is not like the other. Um, so the SpaceX r- does look just incredibly dominant at the at this moment. If you're talking about getting satellites to space, it's it's like SpaceX and Rocket Lab. That's it, you know. So you've got one company that's done 
hundreds of launches, another that's done dozens, and then very quickly you drop off to one or two, and most of those rockets are being rebuilt and refashioned. So there's kind of two games in town. Um, the Starship thing is interesting because does it take longer than Elon expects and give Rocket Lab time to sort of it's building a bigger rocket. Does that give it time to catch up to the Falcon nine? Um, does rocket lab become sort of this, this, whatever you want to call it, the IBM to, to SpaceX's Apple um, where you have these two competitors. I think something like that could happen. I also think sort of like I mentioned before, I think we're going to have this retrenching and then there's going to be another stab at this where we try to correct some of the mistakes that came before. And and all of that will, you know, even SpaceX could not meet the demand if all these spreadsheets are correct and we are to send up 200,000 satellites in call it the next 10 or 12 years, you know, not even SpaceX really would be able to meet that demand. And and I don't think the rest of the world would tolerate having just one, one company doing all this. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a huge question. This is like the, this is the dominant question hanging over this whole industry though, is, is how many rockets do we need and who makes it? It seems as if the character who comes closest to connecting all the threads in the book is Pete Warden, the former Air Force general and NASA center director who encouraged the rise of commercial space ventures. And he caught a lot of flack for his criticism of the way things were done in the old days, including allegations that he was part of a deep space conspiracy. And let me try that again. He was part of a deep state conspiracy, although it could be a deep space conspiracy as well. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? And I'm also wondering whether you've picked up on other cloak and dagger shenanigans in the space community. Yeah, well, Pete's possibly my favorite character in the whole book. He's, you know, I don't think many people, he's definitely, obviously not a household name, and even people pretty close to this world might not sort of realize everything he did, but he was, he's this looming figure who used to do dark ops missions for the government. And he, he was very, very high up in the star Wars missile defense program. And, and sort you know, comes from this like clandestine, quite shady part of the, <laughs> of the government. And he ends up taking over NASA Ames, which is the Silicon Valley NASA center. And, and even though Pete is, he's this brigadier general and he, he has all the trappings of kind of like a conservative, uh, you know, type. He, he was, he was quite the contrary. I mean, he's a, he's a counter punching counterculture, um, hater of bureaucracy and, and sort of brought that to NASA, brought in all these young people who went off to found companies like planet labs and Astra. And I think we have a tendency to look right at, Elon and I and there's truth to this as this like inciting incident of commercial space but if you take one step back it, it's I think Pete Warden who laid a lot of this intellectual foundation for um where things could go you know he he's arguing in papers from the 70s and 80s of having small satellites having small rockets of NASA just being this kind of bloated you know needing to shake it up and and so when elon came along pete and elon were really kindred spirits who helped push all this stuff um as for the cloak and dagger i mean 
there's interesting things going on in satellite land where we have all kinds of stuff between Russia and China in the U.S. with uh, satellites that can spit out baby satellites that can go grab other satellites and, and mm-hmm. people people try to shoot down satellites just to show that they can and create all this debris and then. I argue like in the epilogue of my book, I mean, a lot of this really sort of very clearly came to a head in Ukraine in the, in the war where I would suggest that's kind of the first space war or the inkling of a space war that we've seen where you had, you had SpaceX's Starlink system as like this backbone for the Ukrainian army to keep their communications when the Russians thought they could just deplete Ukraine's entire communication system um, in a matter of days. And then you had Planet Labs and Maxar providing these images from space that showed exactly where the Russian troops were amassing before the war. You had SAR imagery that could see at night, you know, where the Russian troops were going. I mean, this is amazing. I don't think people fully understand it yet. You had one of the three main traditional space superpowers in Russia get totally flipped on its head by commercial space um, and and all of this used against them, um, not by stuff Ukraine had invested billions of dollars in over a long period of time, just by tapping into commercial systems. And so um, I was going to say for better or worse, but almost certainly for worse, space and the military are are things are only going to get more chaotic, I think, as time goes on. Do you have any books or movies or sources you would recommend uh, other than your books and your stories to keep track of all this? I know that there there have been a lot of books written about the, the space industry, you know, going back decades, basically. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat and I'm gonna look up just the title of one in particular um, while we're talking. It's by Alexander McDonald, who is an economist at NASA, um, and he wrote a book called "The Long Space Age." And I found it really fascinating as I was doing my research on this because he makes this argument that commercial space got sort of derailed and turned into government space almost as like a historical accident. You know, he goes back to the Mm -hmm. very wealthy people who were funding these huge telescopes um, in the early late 1800s, early 1900s. And that this was kind of like the equivalent of what you might do for a rocket. This is where rich people wanted to put their money. And then in the early 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, we had these rocket pioneers in the U.S., Russia, and Germany who were making liquid-fueled rockets. And and Robert Goddard had a company, you know, it was a rocket company. It had some defense money. It had some private money. I mean, we were heading in a interesting direction. He wanted to go to the moon. People thought it was crazy. And then the two world wars come along, and, and space becomes this national identity type thing we're we're trying to do the hardest missions of sending people into space and and the moon and it becomes the situation where the rockets get huge they get expensive they can't fail because it's embarrassing and and you know everything gets buttoned up and very tight and it stays that way for decades um so i love this book just because it i'd never thought of it in quite that way and and I think it's right. And I think we're kind of like returning to where space should be. Um, there's one other one I'd call out, which is it's a 
sort of an acronym. It's NPIC, the letter N and then PIC. And, and it's, it's about the early days of the Corona spy satellite program, which was one of my favorite things to read about because it's just nuts. You know, we sent up some of our first rockets carrying uh, canisters of film and dropped them down (laughs) from satellites that planes had to catch in midair. It's like, this was all this clandestine program. And, you know, you read about the, then how the image analysts got these images back and it was like hundreds of miles of, of film that they had to look through you know, by hand um, to try to figure out what the Russians were doing. And, and it's just, it's amazing to see how far we've come now. Now we send like a, basically a smartphone into space and just start snapping constant pictures. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So those are some interesting suggestions for looking back Uh, in terms of looking ahead. uh, We are probably going to have thousands, if not tens of thousands of satellites going into low Earth orbit for these telecommunication constellations. There might be more commercial space stations being built, uh, and NASA is seeking commercial partners to support exploration beyond Earth orbit. So can you look ahead to the next 10 years and try to give an outlook on how the commercial space industry will evolve and how it might change our lives in the next 10 years or so? Yeah, I'll give my best guess. I mean, I find it so fascinating. I, I I sort of feel like we're possibly at like the early days of the internet. You know, if when I think about this and the way I write about it in the book is is even if we don't know how this will all pan out, but we are going to make a go at putting up like we've talked about this hundred thousand satellites around the earth so we're building a computing shell around our planet is going to photograph it and analyze it in ways we've never thought possible before for the first time ever we're gonna even though we've been hearing about like the internet of things for decades and and all this i mean we will have a real constant internet heartbeat coding the entire planet you know it's going to do two things half the world that cannot get fiber optic cables today will will be brought into the modern economy and have all the the good and the bad that comes with that. Um, it's also going to create this this sort of persistence of data. You know, all these things we've heard about for so long: sensors on every object, or even I think about like self driving cars and drones and all these things that have to be always connected and talking to each other. I mean, the only way this happens is this new. Fabric. I don't think people have fully thought about it this way or realized what's going on. I mean, to me, this is like the dot com build out, laying all that fiber, building all those data centers. We're just doing it in the sky now. And it's going to change a lot. And like on the imaging side, we can now count every tree on the planet and see how green our planet is and figure out the second somebody's illegally cutting down rainforest in the the amazon we can find out exactly how much carbon dioxide is being gobbled up you know the actual biomass of all this vegetation um i think we'll be able to track our planet in these new ways and really understand it better and so i'm fascinated by that i think the you pick which number you want to put on it 1 trillion 10 trillion 20 trillion dollar question is 
do we find something beyond imaging, beyond communications, beyond a bit of science that has that sort of 1996 internet, consumer internet feel to it where it was unexpected and there's all these new businesses popping up and that's what all this hinges on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And do you want to say anything about uh, space exploration? Because uh, Elon has always talked about going to Mars and the moon is a focus for uh, a lot of companies right now, including uh, Rocket Lab and and, uh, a lot of the companies that are kind of the supporting actors in your book, if not the main players. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't know why I just the moon and Mars and, and the human colonies, they just, I don't know why they do less for me and space tourism does too. For some reason, I'm fascinated by this. Uh, it feels more tangible to me, what we're doing in low earth orbit and, and, and just real and, and immediate. I don't know why that grabs me so much. I feel like Peter Beck, even though rocket lab is going to Mars and Venus with probes is somewhat in the same camp. I'm kind of, you know, I feel like we have to do this, this first stage and then we get to like where the next one actually is interesting. Like if we can, if we have proper manufacturing in low earth orbit, proper like fueling stations, you know, I think all this other stuff becomes way more feasible. Um, And so, so yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I am not, I will not be on the the first rocket to Mars. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I think anybody who wants a reality check on the space industry We'll have to read When the Heavens Went on Sale because you show the seamy underside as well as the (laughs) ad astra to the stars aspect of all this. So thank you so much for sharing your time and spending all that time uh, doing the research. Great book. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. I hope people enjoy it and and get to have a little bit of a, a laugh and learn something along the way. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Ashley Vance and Sonia Chus at Echo Harper Collins for setting up the interview. Ashley's book, whose full title is When the Heavens Went on Sale, The Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Space Within Reach, goes on sale May 9th. For more about the book and about the commercial space frontier in general, check out my blog item on CosmicLog.com. Thanks to James Emley for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast channel happens to be. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.